Good morning, Plum Creek. It is great to see all of you here today. I am so glad that we're back together worshiping in person. I'm also glad that we can still connect with all of you watching online. And for me personally, I'm glad to be back in the outside world. Uh, most of you know that I tested positive for COVID and I had to go into quarantine. And I'm very thankful because my case was not serious at all. Uh, but I do know others who have had and are having a much rougher time, and I've certainly been praying for them. This has been a strange and difficult season in so many ways, but that just means it's a great time to focus on the good news of Jesus and focus on the good news of Christmas. Christmas is proof that we have a God who loves us, and he knows what we're going through, and he has all the help that we need. So we're going to continue in our Evergreen series today, and we're going back to Matthew chapter 1, to the genealogy of Jesus. We've been looking at Jesus' family tree, and this is how Matthew begins his biography of Jesus. He starts with a long list of names, and this may seem kind of strange to us, maybe a little boring, but it actually makes all kinds of sense. Uh, in ancient times, your genealogy was like your resume. It was a chance to present a person's pedigree. Uh, it, it was a way to say, hey, you should pay attention to this person. And for us today, this genealogy is valuable on several levels. Uh, for one thing, it helps us understand that we are not reading a fairy tale here. A preacher named Tim Keller said it this way. He said, Matthew's genealogy roots Jesus in history. The gospel doesn't begin once upon a time. Christ isn't a legend. He was a flesh and blood human being in space and in time. So that historical backdrop is very important. But there's another value to this family tree. When we look at who is included on this list, we learn a lot about God himself. Remember, an ancient genealogy was like a resume. And you wanted to present the person in the best possible light and because of that, it was pretty common to just erase a few names to give the reader a better impression. And this is where Matthew chapter 1 is very surprising. I'll read just a few verses here. Matthew 1, starting with verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. And I'll stop right there so you don't start nodding off. Uh, Matthew goes on for a while like that. Uh, but already we have a few surprises. See, there were several types of people you would normally leave out of a Jewish genealogy. Uh, for one, you would not include women. And that was because the Jewish culture at that time was patriarchal. Uh, the men ran the show. Second, you wouldn't include foreigners or outsiders. The nation of Israel had been set apart as God's chosen people, and they thought of themselves as kind of an exclusive club. So you'd normally leave out anyone who did not come from a Jewish line. Then third, you'd prefer to leave out notorious sinners. If some individual in the family line had done something horrible or committed a terrible crime, 
you'd want to delete them from the genealogy because a criminal would discredit the person you're talking about. Now, it's very interesting. All three of these categories show up in Matthew chapter 1. Let's go back to the genealogy and look at verses 5 and 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So in just that little section, look at who we have. Uh, Last week, we talked about King David, and he certainly qualifies as a notorious sinner, right? Uh, He took another man's wife, and then he had that man killed to cover up his sin. And then we also have Ruth here. Ruth was David's grandmother, and she fits into two of these categories. She's a woman, and she's also a foreigner. She came from outside of the nation of Israel. But today, we're going to focus on one person here, Rahab. Rahab is the great-grandmother of David, and she matches up with all three of those categories. Number one, she's a woman. Number two, she's a foreigner. And number three, she had a bad reputation just because of her career. Rahab was a prostitute. People looked down on Rahab because of her occupation. But before we start to look down on her too, we should remember something. No little girl dreams of growing up to become a prostitute. There's almost always a painful story there. See, the truth is, Rahab was like all of us. She was a flawed person who was still very loved by God. We're going to see that here in a minute. But all the same, it is still shocking to run across Rahab's name in this genealogy of Jesus. So why did Matthew go out of his way to include her? Like I said, this family tree tells us something about God himself. So let's look a little closer at Rahab's story. Rahab was an important character in the famous Battle of Jericho. Uh, That's the battle where the walls came tumbling down. But before we get to that, here's a little background. For hundreds of years, God's people lived as slaves in the nation of Egypt. But then God sent Moses to lead the people out of slavery. After they escaped, though, they spent 40 years just wandering in the wilderness without a home. But before those years of wandering, generations before, God had promised that he would take his people, his chosen people, into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And now God appointed Joshua to lead that charge into the promised land. God goes to Joshua and he says, son, you need to be strong and courageous because I will give you this land, but you're going to have to fight some battles along the way. And Jericho was the first city that Israel would encounter. And this city was no joke. Jericho had walls all the way around the city, and those walls were 12 feet thick. And outside the first wall was a second wall that was six feet thick. And there were guards on both of those walls. There was a a well-trained army inside the city. And Joshua decides to send two spies into that town to gather some intel because they needed to figure out how they were going to take this city. So we'll pick up the story right here in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. That verse says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, 
secretly sent two spies from Shittim. We have to be careful how we pronounce that word. So Joshua said, go look over the land, especially Jericho. And so the spies went, and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So there she is. The people of Israel needed an ally, and Rahab is the one who stepped up to the plate. And remember, she's a foreigner. Up to this point, she's had no contact with the nation of Israel, and that means she was not taught to follow the God of Israel. She was actually taught to worship the gods of Canaan. And we see pretty quickly that Rahab's caught in the middle here. Uh, Over here, uh, on one side, you had her people, the people of Jericho, the king of the city. But then, on the other side, you had the people of Israel. You had this army that was about to attack her city. And if they won the battle, they were going to be in charge. So Rahab had a call to make. Which, Which side would she be on? And she decided to choose Team Israel. Not so much because of the people, but because of their God. See, she's heard stories. She's kept her eyes open. And she's come to believe that the God of Israel is the one true God. So when the spies show up, she decides to help them. She decides to hide them. And of course, the king of Jericho expects Rahab to be loyal to their side. The king goes to Rahab and he says, hey, we know that some men came to your house and we need you to bring them out because they are spies. Rahab's choice was already made. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they laughed. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. Now, you've got to be impressed with Rahab's courage, right? Because here you have one woman standing up to this powerful king. But where did that courage come from? Well, it came from her belief that the God of Israel was truly God. Look at verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, Our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven heaven above and on the earth below. So it's starting to make sense, isn't it? Rahab's decision to follow the God of Israel was not random. It was not blind faith. It was based on evidence. She looked at the situation and she said, yeah, our gods cannot do what the God of Israel can do. It looks like we've been following some cheap imitation of the real thing. So God, I want to be on your side. But Rahab's not done yet. She's about to go a step further. In the next verse, Rahab looks at the spies and she says, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family 
because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Now, I love this. Rahab is brave, and she's also smart. She says, guys, I am glad to help you, but I'm also asking that you help me in return. And the spies are like, sure, that's totally reasonable. And they agree to protect Rahab's family during the invasion. And some of you know what happens from here. The spies go back to Joshua with some valuable information. And pretty soon, the army of Israel shows up just outside of Jericho. And following God's instructions, the Israelites march around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they march around seven times. And then they blow their horns, they shout this great battle cry, and that's when God intervenes. And he causes the walls of the city to crumble and fall down. So the city is defeated, and Israel moves into the promised land. And if you skip ahead a few chapters, you see an important footnote to this story. Joshua 6.25. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now pay close attention to that last phrase there. Rahab lives among the Israelites to this day. You know what that means? It means she was adopted into God's family. To to go with our evergreen theme, if you want to put it in tree-based terms, she was grafted in. She was a foreigner who became part of the nation of Israel. And that type of thing was not common. So why did it happen? Why was Rahab adopted into God's family? Now that is a pivotal question because this is where Rahab's story connects directly to our story. Rahab was a sinner. And like Rahab, all of us have been separated from God's family because of our sin. And try as you might, you will never be at rest and you will never be at home until you know for sure that you've been adopted into God's family. But why would he do that? Why would God adopt us? Well, we can answer that question by flipping over to the New Testament The story of Rahab becomes famous among the Jews, and she shows up several times later in the Bible. For instance, we see her in James chapter 2. James says, In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Now let's think about this. Why did God adopt Rahab into his family? Did she earn God's approval by doing a good deed for his chosen people? Well, based on what James says, it kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? Rahab was considered righteous for what she did. But is that really how God looks at us? Is he like, okay, if you do something that impresses me, then maybe I'll let you into my family. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then sure, I will adopt you as one of my own. Is that what God does? Well, if we only look at James chapter 2, we might just come to that conclusion. But this is when we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. 
if we flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, we get a little more perspective. Hebrews 11 focuses on the topic of faith. And according to God, faith is no small issue. When God looks at us, one of the primary things he's looking for is faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So based on this verse, we will never please God without faith. We will never be adopted into his family without faith faith. There's a definition of faith that I've given dozens of times, but it's very important, so I need to bring it up again. Faith is not just belief. Faith is belief plus trust. Think about an airplane. I I might believe that a particular airplane is able to fly, but I am not trusting in that plane until I step on board. So that means I don't really have faith unless I also have trust. So back to this verse, what else do we see here? It says, anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So does that remind you of anyone? That's that's a perfect description of Rahab, isn't it? She decided that the God of Israel was the only true God, and it wasn't some random guess. Her belief was based on evidence. So Rahab placed her life into his hands. She said, God, I choose to be on your side. I believe that you will take care of me, so I put my future into your hands. And at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, there's a a fascinating statement. Hebrews 11, 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So there's the key there. By faith. Rahab did what she did because of her faith. It wasn't the action itself that earned God's approval. It was her faith that was critical here. And Rahab's story helps us understand how we can be adopted into God's family. And here's how it works. First, even before you have any faith, you can be confident that God loves you. That's why Jesus came. That's where the story of Christmas comes from. Jesus came to this world, and he lived a perfect life, but then he died in your place to cover the penalty for your sins. And Jesus did that because he wanted you in his family. But when God looks at you now, he's looking for faith. He wants you to say, Lord, I'm not going to try to make it on my own. I'm placing my life in your hands. I'm placing myself under your authority. From now on, my trust is in you. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 says, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. So grace, it's a gift that we don't deserve. God is willing to save anyone foreigners, outsiders, notorious sinners. He's willing to save anyone because he wants you in his family. But you can't be saved unless you give your life over to Jesus. It's by grace through faith. And when you truly have faith, it shows up in the way that you live. Remember what we said, faith is belief plus trust. And that's what we saw with Rahab. Her faith 
led to courage. That's where her bravery came from. It's from her trust in God. She had this attitude that said, if God is for me, who can be against me? Her faith also led to action. That's why she hid those spies. She did that because of her faith. And I don't know about you, but I am inspired by Rahab. She lived in a time that was scary. It was disturbing because her city was under attack and her future was uncertain. But she put her faith in the true God. And I realize that Rahab's situation is different from what we face today, but there are some similarities because we're living in a disturbing time, aren't we? Our future is uncertain. A lot of us are stressed. A lot of us are worn out. And we're really hoping that things will change for the better. And if you're struggling right now, I want you to know it's okay to be human. It's okay to feel frustrated. It's okay to feel other emotions. But even in the midst of those feelings, you can still choose faith. You can still say, God, I put my life and my future in your hands. And that doesn't have to be blind faith. Like I said last week, you can go back and you can look at God's track record. He's always faithful. He always keeps his promises. And Christmas is a perfect example of that. The evidence is there. And when you choose to put your trust in God, like I said, it will make a difference in your life in your attitude and in your actions. Your faith will give you courage. You'll say, hey, as long as God is for me, it doesn't matter who's against me. And whatever happens in the future, whatever I have to go through, I can rest in the fact that I have been adopted. I've been grafted into God's family. There's one more verse in Hebrews 11 that really struck me a few weeks ago. And the author of Hebrews in this chapter, he's making a list of people who lived with a remarkable faith. And he says, these people, these heroes of the faith, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Isn't that amazing? God is not ashamed to be called their God. So he's proud of the people in Hebrews chapter 11 and and many of these people in Matthew chapter 1. He's proud of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God is also proud of Rahab. He is proud that her name shows up in his family, in the family line of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it powerful to know that? Despite your past, despite everything that you wish you could change, God still wants you as a part of his family. And when you put your faith in him, he is so proud of you. Last Sunday, several people were baptized right here at Plum Creek. And baptism is such a significant event. In baptism, we see someone who is putting their faith in Jesus. And that faith leads to a bold action. Baptism is an act of surrendering to Jesus. It's allowing your old and sinful life to be buried as you're buried in the water. And then you walk away to live a new life, knowing that you've been adopted and grafted into God's family. 